take a Bible, the first place that we're going to end up reading from is 2 Kings chapter 18. So if you need a head start for 2 Kings 18, you can make your way there. Tonight we're talking about King Hezekiah. Uh, each of these Wednesday nights where we have talked about the kings, we've backed up in the storyline just to help ourselves understand the context of the nation of Israel and the storyline of Israel. And this sort of exercise, I think, is particularly helpful when you come to a topic or a person like Hezekiah. Hezekiah's story shows up in very similar forms, but slightly different in three places in the Bible, in Kings and Chronicles, and then a significant amount of it, surprisingly, in the book of Isaiah. And if you're just reading from Genesis through the end of the Old Testament, you don't necessarily know that those books are not all chronological. And sometimes the order of, of the way the books are arranged just makes the storyline a little bit difficult. So here's the, the history of the leaders of Israel. It starts with Moses. As the people come out of slavery in Egypt, Moses is the first leader. In some ways, he's the great leader. He does a little bit of everything for the nation of Israel. He's a remarkable man. He's a humble man. He is not allowed to enter the promised land. Instead, he is charged with equipping and preparing Joshua to take the people into the promised land. And so Joshua does that. They fight in Jericho. They fight in the north. They fight in the south. They take the promised land. They settle. Everything's great. Then we come to the period of the judges where everything's suddenly not great. And you basically have the people running amok, chasing after idols, and falling into persecution, falling into oppression from all these different Canaanite peoples that they didn't fully drive out of the land. And every now and then the Lord will raise up a judge and the judge will provide a little bit of relief and deliverance from a certain uh, oppressor in a certain place for a certain time. But then when these judges die, everything goes back and it's worse than it was to begin with. The last judge is Samuel. Samuel is the one who anoints Saul, and then later he's responsible for anointing David. And then after David, there is Solomon. And then after Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided into two. And that was my Bible reading this morning. I've told you I'm using a Bible reading plan. I'm 11 days behind on the schedule right now, so I've got some catching up to do. But this morning I landed on uh, the dividing the kingdom with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam takes the northern tribes. They call that nation Israel, the northern kingdom. Rehoboam takes the southern part, mostly Judah and a few other smaller groups of people, and that becomes the nation of Judah. We're now at the point in the story where Israel is on the way out. We talked about Hosea last week. Hosea overlaps with Hezekiah here. We'll talk about that and uh, we're in the twilight years of the nation of Judah. So to get your mind thinking, I want to talk to you for just a minute about cars. Americans love cars. How many of you can remember your first car? How many of you, when I ask you to raise your hand, do you remember your first car? How many of you can see yourself sitting in that car? You can picture the dash and you know, I remember how it smells. <laughs> And I remember the door handle was broken here or all that sort of stuff. Especially men, I'm, just, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because this might be embarrassing for some of you. But I'll just say, a lot of men, when I just start talking about your first car, you, you're getting a lump in your throat right now. And you're like, I remember. Why did you have to bring that up? I remember and I missed that car. Okay, this was my first car. Now, the paint job is a little off. I found pictures of a 1984 Ford Bronco II, two-tone brown that was the right paint job, but they were rusted out, sitting in nasty places, and I thought, I don't wanna remember my first car like that. So I put this one up. The color's a little bit off. Mine did not have the, the dark brown. It had like two-tone tan. And I'm just telling you, when I look at that car, that is a beautiful thing. Two-tone tan, two-tone brown, Ford Bronco 2. It's just a wonderful, wonderful vehicle. I would pay any amount of money to have one just like the one I had right now. I miss it, and I love that car. Now, if I'm honest, it was a piece of junk. It was a total piece of junk, and it leaked oil. More, I mean, I put oil in it all the time. Oil, 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 oil. Put it in the shop. Hey, we fixed the oil leak. You get it home, oil just falling out of the bottom of the thing. What in the world? 
is going on. But I love, I love this car, 1984 Ford Bronco II. They made these cars in Louisville, Kentucky between 1984 and 1990. Now, here's the thing about the Bronco. It was, in the 80s, a reboot. They had made this car originally in the 60s, 1966. We had a man at the church that I pastored in Kentucky who collected Ford Broncos from the 60s. And he had an amazing collection, mostly all complete junk sitting out in the field, but an amazing collection that he had great intentions of doing something with at some point in time. So this car was around in the 60s, the Bronco was around. Then in the 80s, they rebooted it. And it was in production for about six, seven years. Then they quit making it. And then now they've started making it again. And so you can see the old and then the 80s and then the new. And I'm just telling you, when I see these cars driving around town, any variety, any vintage, any of it, you just get a little soft spot in your throat and you think, I need one of those cars. Why am I driving this? Why don't I have one of those cars? This is what Americans love to do. We love the reboot Okay? We do it with cars all the time. We haven't made this car for X number of years. Oh, we're bringing it back, and everyone gets so excited because we're bringing it back. We do this with TV shows. How many of you remember watching The Wonder Years, right? Kevin Arnold and Jack and the whole crew. Well, there's a reboot now. There's a new modern take, or it's not modern, it's old, but it's new now, whatever. This is a reboot. We're going to bring it back. We're going to do it again. Batman. How many times have we rebooted Batman? We just reboot him over and over and over again. James Bond, we just reboot him over and over and over again. We just do the same things over and over. We bring things back like this all the time. Even fashion. I have children begging me for bell bottoms. You say, we're rebooting bell bottoms, man. We are bringing them back. That's just what Americans do. We, we, we get rid of something. We say, that's old. We don't like it anymore. You wait a while and we say, oh, we got to bring it back. We got to bring it back. Now, look, Hezekiah is remembered for a lot of good stuff. One of the coolest things that he's remembered for is a reboot. In the middle of the story of Hezekiah, there's information about Hezekiah rebooting the Passover. It's one of the strangest stories in all of the Old Testament. The Passover is like the foundational. We're going back to Moses, the foundational experience of God's people leaving Israel. And they come out with Moses and then Joshua and the judges and they settle in the land. And apparently they're keeping the Passover during Saul and David and Solomon. And then apparently it goes out of style. And they don't really put a lot of emphasis on the Passover. Many people don't even celebrate the Passover. And when Hezekiah is on the throne, he brings it back. So we're going to talk about Hezekiah rebooting the Passover and many of the other great things that he did. So take your Bible. The stories about Hezekiah are so good, a lot of what we're going to do is read the story. And we're just going to let the story speak for itself. So you're going to need to have your Bible open. If you want to follow along with the notes, you can do that as well. Hezekiah in the Bible. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he took the throne in Judah. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He was the son of Ahaz and a woman named Abijah, for short, uh, she was called Abby. Sometimes she's called Abby, sometimes she's called Abijah. And... Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So by now you know the, most of the kings have this summary statement attached to their life. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. 25 years old when he takes the throne. He reigns for 29 years. And the big picture view is that he does what's right. So look in your Bible. We're going to read 2 Kings 18, 1 to 8. And then we're going to jump into some of the things on this list. In the third year of Hosea, remember we talked about Hosea last week. He is the last king of the nation of Israel up in the north. He's reigning in Samaria. He's the very last one. So while the very last king of Israel has been on the throne for three years, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehustan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Whenever he went out, excuse me, wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza in its territory from watchtower to fortified city. Now, let's fill in some of this list. Number one, some of the great things Hezekiah did. He tore down the high places. These were places that were physically high up on the hills. Built up on the top of a hill, the pagan peoples would put shrines and altars and Asherah poles and statues to Baal up on the tops of these hills. Many of the times it seems that God's people, the Hebrew people, would build shrines to Yahweh up on these hills. And maybe they started with the intention of we're going to go worship Yahweh up on the mountaintop, just like all the other pagans worship their gods. But what inevitably happened is that all of it got mixed together. And the high places were places of idolatry. And so maybe originally there was good intentions in going to these high places. Before the temple was built, maybe it was not a big deal for them to go to the high places. But it just all gets jumbled up in idolatry. And so Hezekiah says we're going to get rid of the high places. Secondly, he destroyed Nehustan, which is this bronze snake. That if you've been reading the Bible, you haven't heard about it since the book of Numbers. And the people are grumbling and they're complaining and God sends fiery serpents and the people are bit by these snakes and they start falling over dead. And they say, God, we gotta, we gotta have a solution. You gotta save us. And so God tells Moses, build a serpent, put it up on a pole. And when the people look to the serpent, when they see that serpent lifted up, they'll live. And they held on to that thing. Not surprisingly, that's a pretty cool story. And they carried it around in all their journeys and they brought it into the promised land. And at some point in their history, like they were prone to do, they turned it into an idol. And they started worshiping it. Now, this is like ancient world history. This is like the great, you know, display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art or whatever. And there were people who would have said, Hezekiah, you can't, you can't do it. That thing is valuable. We've had that thing for a long time. We'll stop. We promise we'll stop. Please don't destroy it. And Hezekiah knew the people, and he said, we just got to get rid of it. It's a snare. It's an idol, so he destroyed it. Thirdly, he trusted in the Lord, and he kept the law. Trusted in the Lord and kept the law. I told you Americans like cars. Americans also like to debate lists of greatness who's the greatest president who's the greatest quarterback of all time who's the greatest basketball team of all time we love to argue and and debate about these things Corey and I could sit down after studying about all these kings and we could say okay who was the best who was the top dog and I would say it's my guy Hezekiah it says 2 Kings 18.5, he trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. None like him before him, none like him after him, completely unique in his relationship with the Lord and his faithfulness to the Lord. He defied Judah's enemies. He stood up to them. He wouldn't serve Assyria. He fought the Philistines. If you move into the book of 2 Chronicles, we'll float back and forth a little bit. We'll keep going on this list. He also repaired the temple. There's a fascinating verse in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 17. It says, They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month. On the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days, they consecrated the house of the Lord. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. And that's right in the middle of this story of them cleansing the temple. And this is what it's telling you. It took over two weeks to pull all the filth out of the temple. This is not a huge building. 
This is not a massive structure, but it took 16 days to pull all of the mess and the filth and just the junk and the idols, all the mess from all of this temple area. took them 16 days to clean this out. He restored worship, not just physically the structure, put some shine on it, but what happened there was worship, and he restored that worship, in particular, the Passover. If you have your Bible open, you can look at 2 Chronicles 30, verse 1. Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and he, he wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember, he overlapped with Hosea. Hosea's clock is ticking, but Hezekiah is on the throne. And right here at the end, here's another example of God's grace and his mercy. Right at the end of Israel's history, there's a godly king in Judah. And he sends word to Israel and he invites these people, come to Jerusalem. After 250 years of wickedness and rebellion, come to Jerusalem to the temple and worship the Lord. You can read about all that happens with this Passover. Here's the big picture. The timing is a little bit off. They start too late. And they sort of look around and they think, man, we missed it. Are we going to have to wait? It's like realizing it was Christmas on January 15th. And you're like, do I really have to wait 11 months to come back around and celebrate that holiday? And they put their heads together and they say, we're going to do it. And they basically say, God, we know it's the wrong month, but we really want to celebrate this. We haven't done it in a really long time. Please let us do it. And God says, your heart's in the right place. Next year, get back on track. This year, do it. And there's some issues with who can celebrate and who can't celebrate. And there's some people who, because it's last minute, they're not really qualified to celebrate. And they say to the Lord, Lord, we know, we know that they're not supposed to do it. Please let us. And God says, you know what? Now you know, your heart's in the right place. Let these people celebrate. So they celebrate the Passover. Look what we read at the end of chapter 30. There was great joy in Jerusalem for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Nothing like this Passover celebration. The priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people and their voice was heard and their prayer came to his, to God's holy habitation in heaven. So he restores worship. And this may seem insignificant, but he organized the Levites. Organized the Levites. You can look at 2 Chronicles 31. I'll be honest with you. When you read 2 Chronicles 31, it's one of those chapters, if you wake up early and do your Bible reading really early in the morning, or if you try to squeeze it in right before you go to bed, you might fall asleep in that chapter. I'm just being honest. You're going to read it and you're like, this is just kind of tedious stuff to read through here, but it's really an important chapter because in organizing the Levites, what Hezekiah is doing is he is ensuring this isn't just a one-time thing. He wants it to continue. He wants more people to come and to worship the Lord. He's putting practical things into place. Think of this like Sunday school teacher training, training for Awana teachers on Wednesday nights, discipling parents so that they can disciple their kids. In getting the Levites together, he's helping to promote worship in Israel. Last, and certainly not least, he promotes wisdom. Proverbs chapter 25, part of Proverbs that you probably never paid much attention to. Proverbs 25, you're at the end of the book. It says, these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. So basically you had an initial form of the book of Proverbs, all these Proverbs collected together under Solomon. And then there was some other stuff that Solomon wrote out there. And Hezekiah says, hey, we need to bring that stuff in too because there's some really good stuff. So chapter 25, several chapters following that in the book of Proverbs is stuff from Solomon, but Hezekiah and his men combined it and copied it all down. So a lot of good things that he did. Hezekiah took the throne of Judah in the third year of Hosea, king of Israel. We've talked about that. The nation of Israel was conquered by Assyria while Hezekiah was ruling in Judah. That's referenced in 2 Kings 18. 
This is a detail of history that is easy for us to, to read and to note, and you fill in a blank. But I just want you to think about the trauma that was involved in this. These nations are right beside each other, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And the world superpower comes and conquers your cousins in the north in Israel and has every intention of conquering you too. It's sort of be like, you know, we're in the United States. This is not at all comparable. We can't put ourselves in the position of tiny, tiny Judah or tiny Israel compared to these world superpowers because we are the world superpower. But it would sort of be like if the Chinese invaded North America and they conquered Canada and they conquered Mexico and they had us surrounded, there would be a lot of concern in the United States, right? Chinese army amassing on the northern border, Chinese army amassing on our southern border. Hope the wall's big. Chinese are coming. You better get ready. I mean, it would be absolute panic if that were to happen, and that was the situation when Hosea and Israel were conquered by Assyria. After conquering the northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians tried to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah. They march on Judah. And this is one of the absolute greatest stories in all of the Bible. I want you to take your copy of the scriptures and there's just several things that I want to read with you. Starting in 2 Kings 18, verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and he took them. So you understand what the story's telling you. The Assyrians, several years earlier, have conquered Israel. They have a new king, and they're marching against Judah, and they invade the land. In fact, they take some of the cities in Judah. They get El Paso. They get McAllen. They get Victoria and some of these places on the fringe. They haven't made it to the capital yet, but they are encroaching on the city with intent to conquer Judah. Look with, with me at chapter 19, verse 1. There's some back and forth. There's some trash talking between the Assyrians and the people of Judah. Chapter 19, 2 Kings, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth. He went into the house of the Lord. Remember, they'd cleaned it out. They'd restored it. So he went to the house of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah. We read from Isaiah earlier, the son of Amaz. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, rebuke, disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshakeh. That's one of the, the Assyrian generals whom the master, his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So they're calling a prayer meeting. They have no hope of defeating this army militarily. Israel has been completely wiped out, and they completely think we're next. All we can do is pray to the Lord. They go to the temple, they pray to the Lord. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And that rumor comes up starting in verse 8. Look what Hezekiah actually prays if you jump down to verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it before the Lord. Basically, the Assyrian army sent a letter saying, Hey, we're leaving. We'll be back. You're not off the hook. Don't think that God has saved you. Don't fool yourself. We're coming back. So he takes the letter. He spreads it out. Verse 15 Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. 
Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Don't forget that last part of that prayer. It's going to be important later. Please save us so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you and you alone are God. Isaiah gives him a word of encouragement starting in verse 20. Look what we read if you pick up in verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, Or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Listen to this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and he went home and he lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Irshadon, his son, reigned in his place. It's an absolute miracle. It's an absolute miracle. It was the only hope that the people had is that the Lord God would come through for them. And they present their case to the Lord and they pray, God, we need you to save us, not just so that we can live another day. We want you to save us so that all the nations of the earth will know that you and you alone are God. And that night, the angel of the Lord goes out and kills sort of like a second exodus. 185,000 dead when they wake up in the morning. And the people go out and they plunder this army and they take all of the gold and all of the weapons and all of the stuff that these men had carried with them from Assyria. It's a remarkable story. Now, you move into chapter 20. The timeline is a little bit fuzzy here. There's a, a line in chapter 20 that says, in those days, chapter 20, verse 1, in those days, Hezekiah became deathly ill He prayed to the Lord, and 15 years were added to his life. You can read about this in 2 Kings. You can read about it in 2 Chronicles. You can read about it in Isaiah. And I'm going to let you read about it on your own. Here's what I'm saying to you. It's not exactly clear when in those days is talking about. Is it talking about while they were under siege? It happened while he got sick and he was on his deathbed while they were under siege somehow? Is it right after it happened? Is it a year after it happened? Is it two years after it happened? It's not exactly clear. But it is clear that the two stories are connected. The author wants you to see there's two things that happened in the life of Hezekiah you need to know about. One is that the Assyrians marched on his nation and the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 of them. The second thing you need to know about Hezekiah is that he got sick, really sick. It happened about the same time in those days. He's about to die and he prays again. He prayed about the army. He prays about this illness and God says, you know what? I'm gonna heal you, I'm gonna restore you and I'm gonna give you 15 more years. Two important things that happened in Hezekiah's life that bring us to this. After the defeat of Assyria, the Babylonians sent a diplomatic envoy to Hezekiah in Judah. Again, I've given you the references in Kings and Chronicles. Let me just try to piece it all together because all of these stories tell different details that are important. When the Lord, angel of the Lord, strikes down 185,000 Assyrians. You understand word spreads, not through Facebook, but word spreads to other nations. Hey, the Assyrians just tried to conquer Jerusalem and somehow in the middle of the night, 185,000 people died. Babylon heard about that. They knew. Somebody tried to conquer that little tiny kingdom 
and 185,000 people died. Babylon also heard that King Hezekiah had been sick and on his deathbed. And associated with that time when he was sick, the Lord God not only healed him but gave him a sign. And he said to Hezekiah when he was sick, and he was going to get 15 more years, Hezekiah wasn't sure about the whole thing. And the Lord said, Hezekiah, I'm going to give you a sign. Do you want the sundial to go forward 10 steps or back 10 steps? And he said, well, seems a little bit easier to move it forward, so how about back? So the sundial moved back 10 steps. The text seems to indicate that Babylon experienced whatever happened there. They know about the dead Assyrians. They know that he was sick. They know that the sundial moved back. And they basically send a, a diplomatic envoy to say, we would like to be your friend. Can we be friends? Maybe we could go out on a date. We don't want to fight you. We would like to know what in the world are you doing to kill 185,000 Assyrians and to roll the sundial back and to heal people who are on their deathbed. Whatever you're doing, we would like some of that. So they show up, the Babylonians. You remember what he prayed? Remember what he prayed when they were facing the Assyrians? God, would you save us so that all the kingdoms of the world would know that you and you alone are God. Here come the Babylonians, and they want to know what's the secret sauce. And you know what Hezekiah does? He says, let me show you my stockpile of weapons. Look at all these weapons I got. Picked them up from all those dead Assyrians. Swords, shields, unbelievable stuff. And he goes, oh, let me show you one more thing takes him down to the bank, opens the vault. Look at all this money I have. I got, I got so much money. Right? I got a, all this military stuff. I got all this money. Do you know where he did not take them? To the temple. No mention that he took them to the temple. What did he pray when he was so afraid of the Assyrians, God, would you please save us so that all the kingdoms of the world would know that you and you alone are God. The kingdoms of the world walk right into his city, groveling, asking to be friends, essentially. What in the world is going on? And he says, well, we, we got a really big army, and we got a lot of money. He doesn't say anything about the Lord God. Look what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verse 31. Isaiah finds out that the Babylonians have come and that they've seen everything. It's one of the weirdest stories in the Bible, just to be honest with you. It's really weird. Isaiah shows up and he says, hey, uh, Hezekiah, what, what did you show them? He says, well, I showed them the, the armory and I showed them the bank vault. And Isaiah says, yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Whatever they saw they're going to come back and take. They're going to come back. They saw all your army, they're going to take all the army stuff. They saw all your money, they're going to come back and take all the money. And it seems like it's a total setup. It just it doesn't seem that fair. But this is what you read in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 31. In the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself. That's Hezekiah. He left Hezekiah to himself. Why in the world would God leave a good, godly king to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart? And what was in his heart was pride. And he failed the test. We'll circle back to that here in just a minute. Here's how the story ends. Hezekiah died at the age of 54 and he was succeeded by his son Manasseh. It's really, 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 really wicked. What do we learn from Hezekiah's life in his reign as king of Judah? Number one, sin always has consequences. Always has consequences. If you have your Bible still open to 2 Chronicles 32, there's another explanatory verse if you look up at verse 25. It says, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud 
therefore wrath came upon him in Judah and Jerusalem. He did not make benefit, did not make return, excuse me, for the benefit done to him. What was the benefit? Well, God saved him from the Assyrians, and God saved him from death on his sickbed, his deathbed. And then God gave him the opportunity, like he prayed, to tell all the nations that the Lord God was the one true God, and he did not make return for the benefit that was done to him. And he didn't make the return because his heart was proud. Here's something I just, I cannot explain to you. Corey and I have wrestled with this as we've talked about these kings. I cannot explain to you why the Lord God let somebody like Manasseh sit on the throne for 50 plus years doing wickedness, 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 and it seems like there is no consequence. And then a godly king, a good king, a king that is so good Remember what we read earlier? None like him before and none like him after. That's how good he was. He makes this one mistake and he doesn't share the gospel with the Babylonians when they come knocking on his door and God says, well, you're going to lose all of it. It's all going away. I look at that and I say, that doesn't seem very fair. Manasseh gets a really long leash and he gets away with a lot And Hezekiah makes one relatively minor mistake from my perspective and the consequence is wrath on the nation and God says you're going to lose all of it. But guess what? I'm not God. And I don't get to determine when God shows mercy and grace and when he doesn't. But what you learn from this story as well as Manasseh's is that sin always has consequences. In God's grace and his mercy, you and I do not always immediately experience the consequence of our sin. You know how often we take that for granted? I mean, every single day, we don't immediately experience the just consequence for our sin. And in God's grace and his mercy, we don't experience the full consequence that our sin deserves. God is patient with us. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. But there are consequences for sin. And sometimes they come in surprising degrees of magnitude. And sometimes they come suddenly when you least expect them. And you've been getting away with something. Or at least you thought you were getting away with something. There's always a consequence to sin. God is testing this king. He's not tempting him. A temptation has the end or the aim or the goal of causing someone to fail. That's not what a test is. My son's going to take a spelling test on Friday. His teacher is not hoping actively that he fails. A test is an opportunity to show what you've learned. That's what this is for Hezekiah. You prayed about the Assyrians. You prayed about your sickness. What have you learned? I'm going to test you. And the way that God tests him, think about this, is he leaves him to himself to see what's in his heart. How many of you at some point in your life had hanging up in your house the footprints picture and story? Footprints in the sand and it's such a nice picture, right? And a nice story and two sets and me and God are walking And then there's one set, and that was a really hard time in my life. And I say, God, why did you leave me? And he says, oh, that wasn't when I left you. That was when I carried you and got you through that. And you read it, and you say, oh, that's nice. Can I tell you the Hezekiah version? Are you ready for this? There's two sets of footprints in the sand, Hezekiah and God, and they're walking, and it's all good. It's great. And then suddenly there's one set, and Hezekiah says, What's that about? And God says, that's when I left you all by yourself to see what was in your heart. And you made it about one footprint in the sand, and then the next thing we see is your face impressed in the sand. You fell completely on your face. You failed the test. You completely failed it. It's not quite as uplifting when you see it above a, a bathroom, you know, and you're in the, somebody's restroom and you're reading it, and you're like, huh. That's kind of discouraging. God left him and he fell on his face in the sand and then the wave came up and knocked him over and that's what happened. Look, this is just the way life works. 
It doesn't take much sin to mess up a life of obedience. He's a good king. He's really good. There's no one like him before or after. But he really messes this up and he's proud. And all it takes is a little bit of sin to mess up a life of obedience. You know that this is how life works. If you were to go home tonight and set fire to your neighbor's house. And then we hauled you into court. We arrested you. The police came. And we took you to court and you stood before the judge. And you said to the judge, judge, I mow my neighbor's lawn every week. I pick his leaves up in the fall. He doesn't trim his bushes. I trim his bushes for him. Do you know how many good things that I've done to my neighbor? None of that would matter one bit. It does not take much sin to ruin a life of obedience. Why? Because sin has consequences. We don't always experience them immediately. We don't always experience them fully. But God is the one who gets to decide how we experience the consequence for our sins. Secondly, The reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, and Josiah remind us that when it comes to generational faith and generational sin, there is no place for presumption or despair. No place for presumption, no place for despair. Now I'm going to take this slide and I'm going to put it up in a different format to help you understand what I'm trying to say here. Here's a a section of the kings of Judah, okay? The good kings are in that sort of turquoise. The bad kings are in red. And the two kings in parentheses are kings that we're not talking about on Wednesday night. So we've skipped them. So if you're reading those names and you're like, I think I missed a Wednesday night, we skipped those guys. We're not talking about them. There's not a lot of information about them. Uzziah and his son, his son Jotham, good kings, really good kings, But then Uzziah's grandson and Jotham's son was Ahaz. He's a bad dude. Really wicked. Really, really wicked. So wicked that during his reign, they accumulated so much junk and filth in the temple that it took Hezekiah 16 days to clean it out. Hezekiah, good king. Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. Stay tuned next week. Spoiler alert, his name's in red. He's bad. Bad, bad, bad. And he sits on the throne for a really long time and he just piles up sin and wickedness. It's a mess. His son Ammon, bad. But then, Josiah. He's great. He's a good, godly king. When you think about our faith being passed from one generation to the next... There is no place for presumption, meaning I'm a Christian and I drag my kids to church every Sunday, so I just presume that they're going to grow up and have the same faith that I do. You cannot, pre- you cannot make that presumption. You cannot presume that the faith will just automatically pass down through bloodlines. It's not how it works. And these kings remind you of that. Some great godly kings, but something went wrong between some of these generations and the faith was not passed down. Now, here's the flip side. You also can't be a negative Nancy in despair. When you look at somebody whose life is a complete wreck and they don't fear God and they don't honor God, you can't look at them and say, well, their kids are really up a creek. I mean, they're at a disadvantage. It's better to have godly parents. But you look at that list, God can hit straight licks with crooked sticks. And he takes the kids of some of these wicked kings and he turns them into some of the godliest men who ever sit on the throne of Israel. There is no place for presumption, just assuming the faith will be passed down. There's also no reason to despair of your kids or your grandkids or someone else's kids or grandkids following the Lord. It makes me think of Psalm 78, and I'm going to let you read it on your own, but Psalm 78 basically says this. It's a long list of Israel's failures, but at the beginning of Psalm 78, the psalmist says, the whole point of what we're doing is to take what we believe about God and to pass it down to the next generation in a way that when we're dead and gone, they can rise up and pass the same faith down to the kids who have not been born yet in a way that that next generation 
when our kids are dead and gone, can rise up and pass it down to our great, great grandkids. That's the aim. It's not going to happen automatically. You can't presume. Well, I drug them to church. I sent them to youth camp. We went to VBS. We came to church on Wednesday nights for crying out loud. What more do you want from me? It's not magic. You can't presume, but you also can't despair. No presumption, no despair. Thirdly, we need to be people who acknowledge our sin and are willing to humbly repent. When the Babylonian envoys came and they said, hey, what's, what's going on in Judah? And Hezekiah said, well, we got a big army and we got lots of money. The prophet Isaiah showed up and he confronts the king. This is a dangerous job in the ancient world to confront a Near Eastern monarch. They could fly off the handle and kill you just like that. They did it regularly in Israel, in Judah, in other nations. Isaiah shows up and he says, you messed it up, man. You prayed that all the nations would know and they came and you didn't tell them. You just took all the credit with your army stuff and your weapons and your swords and your shields and your gold and your silver and all your stuff. To his credit, Hezekiah hears that rebuke and do you know what he does? The prophet comes and says, you're a proud man. And you know what he does? He humbles himself. Look what we read in the text. 2 Chronicles 32. In those days, Hezekiah became sick. This is verse 24. He was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord. He answered him. He gave him a sign. But he did not make return according to the benefit done to him. For his heart was proud Therefore, wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 26, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. He humbled himself. It's what you ought to do when you sin and somebody points it out. You shouldn't get mad at them. You should humble yourself. You know, there's an amazing story. I'll let you look it up later if you want to. It's in Jeremiah 26. Jeremiah lived down the timeline. And they're having a debate in Jeremiah's day about, does anyone listen to the prophets anymore? And it seems really bad. We just went through Jeremiah, so you remember. Nobody listens to Jeremiah. And in this discussion about Jeremiah rebuking the current king who was wicked, somebody pipes up and says, you know what? I remember when Hezekiah was king, so they're looking back on this man. I remember when Hezekiah was king and a prophet named Micah, Micah's not in this story, a prophet named Micah showed up and rebuked everyone for their sin. And you know what they did? You know what Hezekiah and the people did? It's in Jeremiah. They listened. They listened. They didn't run them off. They didn't ignore them. They listened to the prophet when he rebuked their sin. We don't even know what they're exactly talking about in Jeremiah. There's just this memory of, you know, we once had a king who would listen. He was listening. People would confront him in his sin. Kings don't like to be confronted in their sin. Can we be honest? No one in this room likes to be confronted in their sin. You may not have the power at your disposal to off somebody's head when they confront you in your sin, but we don't like it. Hezekiah listened, and he humbled himself. That's what you do when somebody confronts you in your sin. That's what you do when you're in church and a a passage that's read or something that's shared in your Sunday school class convicts you. You don't get mad and run off. You don't say, I hate that Sunday school teacher meddling in my business. When a good friend comes to you and says, hey, I need to talk to you about something, you don't say, I need new friends. What's the matter with you trying to tell me how to live my life? You listen you humble yourself. Last, King Hezekiah's commitment to worship points us forward to the true king who came seeking people who would worship in spirit and in truth. I'll let you connect some of these dots, but if you read in the Gospel of Matthew, 
This king, Hezekiah, is right there in the genealogy that leads to the birth of Jesus the Christ. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the son of Hezekiah. And most of what you read, just the bulk of what you read about Hezekiah's life is Hezekiah reforming worship in Israel. He wanted God's people to worship in spirit and in truth. He wanted it to be genuine and he wanted it to be right. Get rid of the high places. Get rid of the bronze serpent. Get rid of all this nonsense in the temple. We're going to clean it out. We're going to restore the Levites. We're going to bring the sacrifices back. We're going to do the Passover the way God wants us to do the Passover. All these things centered around worship. You can read about Jesus in John chapter 4 talking with a woman in Samaria at the well. And he said, look, the Father is seeking people who will worship in spirit and truth. The true king of Israel had come. He was sitting in a well with a woman from Samaria on the middle of the day in the heat of the sun. And he's telling her God wants people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's where this whole story is leading. We'll end by reading a few verses from Revelation chapter 5. This is Jesus, the king, enthroned in heaven, and all of the cosmos, all of creation, worshiping in spirit and truth. Revelation 5, verse 9 to 14. It says, they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray.